Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. This week we have another Linux-based tablet, this time from Purism, after the one a few weeks ago from Star Labs, although it doesn't look as interesting as the one I talked about a few weeks ago, especially in the pricing department. We also have initial support for HDR in games on Linux and HDR support on the Steam Deck. We have a Linux malware that ran undetected for three years and some more updates on Plasma 6, on the GNOME 45 release candidate, on XFCE's Wayland roadmap and a lot of other things. So as always, if you want more details about any of these topics, all the links are in the show notes. And if you want to help support this show, there are some links for that in the show notes as well. So let's begin with some nice Linux hardware. So a few weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, I talked about the Starlight Mark V, which is a Linux tablet coming from Star Labs. Uh, that is basically a Surface Pro equivalent form factor thingy, which has a relatively underpowered CPU, but is relatively inexpensive. Well, in the same price range as a Surface Pro, so not inexpensive, but it's not like uh, $1,500. Now this week we have another Linux powered tablet, this time from Purism, which you might know about uh, from the Librem phone, which is kind of a disaster in its own thing. Uh, they fail to ship a lot of those devices, even after a few years after people spend their money on this thing. Uh, they refuse refunds. It's it's a whole mess. They also make uh, laptops and, and other things. It's generally a company that I would have a hard time recommending because there's been a lot of controversy over their products and like they wrap themselves in this we're fully open source thing, but at the same time, they basically kickstart everything and fail to ship everything to their backers, which kind of sucks. But still, if you're interested, uh, here's the gist. Uh, it's an 11-inch tablet uh, running Pure OS, which is a custom distro made by Purism. It's based on Debian, uh, and it's only including uh, fully free and open source software. The display will be 2560 by 1600, running at 60 Hertz, and it is powered by a low-power Intel N5100. That's a quad-core CPU. It's running at 1.1 GHz, so it is not a speed demon by any means. It comes with 8 GB of RAM, but it's soldered, so you can't upgrade that. And it comes with 1 TB of NVMe storage, which is very decent. It will also feature two USB-C ports, a headphone jack, a micro SD card reader, and a fingerprint reader, although for now it looks like it isn't yet supported by fprint, so it basically won't work out of the box apparently. Uh, you also get Wi-Fi 6, you get Bluetooth 5, you get dual cameras, and in the box you also get a separate keyboard and a stylus with a bunch of uh, sensitivity for pressure and angling. Looks like a good stylus. The keyboard isn't Bluetooth, it's connected using a, a hard USB-C connection, uh, so it uses the battery of the device, it doesn't have its own thing to be charged, and so there shouldn't be much latency there. But then, there's the price for this thing, and for the hardware, it's very expensive. It's gonna retail for 999 US dollars without shipping. And on paper, if you compare that to a Surface Pro, you might think, that's decent! Except the Surface Pro has a Intel Core CPU, not a N5100, and if you compare it in the Linux realm to the Starlight Mark V, uh, the, the, the one from Star Labs has a bigger display with a better resolution, it has a more recent and more powerful CPU, still not a very powerful one, but better, 
It has more RAM, which apparently isn't soldered. It has more ports with a micro HDMI. And it costs $200 less with the full keyboard, pen and tablet bundle. So I'm pretty sure most people should probably buy the Starlabs device instead. I will get a review unit for the Starlabs device. And, and do understand, I am not shilling for Starlabs. I am not sponsored by Starlabs. They never sponsored any of my videos. They just said they would send me a review unit for the tablet. I haven't had it in my hands, but just looking at the specs and the page, it kind of feels like a no-brainer. Like, why would you want to buy a tablet from a company that historically has been known to be kind of a scam, especially on the Librem and the Librem USA phones? Really weird stuff happening there. Or from Starlabs, which, yes, they don't have that many options, but they've been known to ship their devices and people who have them tend to kind of like them. So, yeah, less money, better specs and a more reputable company. I think the choice isn't really a choice. The price is completely off for the Purism device, basically. 8 gigabytes of soldered RAM, a two and a half year old CPU. For a thousand bucks, it's way too much. And and both devices use Core Boot as well, so it's not like one of them is more free than the other. In the end, you'll make your mind, I doubt that Purism will send me anything to review because they never did, they never offered. I never asked, to be frank. Uh, but yeah, honestly, if it was me, uh, even without waiting for a review or anything, I would go for the Starlabs tablet and not for the Purism one. But yeah, it's a new Linux tablet, so I have to talk about it. And now let's talk about malware. And Linux might be relatively secure by default, not necessarily because its architecture is a lot more secure than the one for Windows or Mac OS, but because it's generally less targeted, at least on the desktop. But it doesn't mean that it's never targeted. And apparently there was a piece of malware that ran for more than three years undetected. Uh, basically, if you went to the do to the website freedownloadmanager.org, because you were probably trying to download the app called Free Download Manager, which I had never heard about before writing this, uh, you sometimes got redirected to another domain which served an infected version of the same application. And this infected version included a script that downloaded two executable files to your var temp directories. And it basically created a cron task to launch these executable every 10 minutes, thus creating a backdoor on your computer. And through this backdoor, the malware launched a reverse shell that let attackers basically control your device and access everything. Uh, they collected browsing history, they collected saved passwords from your browser, they collected crypto wallet files, credentials for various cloud services like AWS, and a lot more. Now, these malicious redirects uh, from the original website to the infected one stopped in 2022. So if you moved to Linux recently, you're probably unaffected. And if, like me, you hadn't even heard about Free Download Manager, you are probably fine too. But I think this serves as a good reminder to not download your software off of various websites. You, people on Windows do that a lot because for now the Windows Store has nothing. On Linux, you use your repos. You don't go online to a website to download the app from the app developer. You go to your distro's repos, you go to the Snap Store or FlatHub, you go to a main repository. And that doesn't mean that these repos cannot be infected. It can happen. Like if a maintainer decides to go rogue and decides to include an infected version of an app, there's nothing you can do. 
if someone package an app uh, as a third-party flat pack and this package isn't checked all that much, then it can be infected too. But in a distro's repo, there's a lot more control over a generic website that you don't really know. Even if you know the developer, you're not sure that you landed on the right website if you're not careful. And in Flathub or the Snap Store, you run sandboxed apps. A Flatpak or a Snap would not have been able to launch that reverse shell to install other executables in other directories. It would not have had access to that. So yeah, don't download your software off of the internet. Download it from the, well, I guess downloading from the repos is downloading from the internet, but not from websites, from your repos or from like community repos that you trust. Don't use devs or RPM packages that you found online. It's not secure. Now let's talk desktop environments. And we have a little bit more uh, Plasma 6 news this week. Uh, they have improved the Wayland session again, because as they said previously, uh, Plasma 6 will be mostly Wayland focused. They're going to recommend using Wayland for Plasma 6. They're not going to drop X11 for Plasma 6, but they're basically completely stopping uh, development on this session. Uh, apart from a few bug fixes, all improvements and new features will come to the Wayland session. And so they fixed uh, cursor responsiveness in Wayland. They improved it a lot because that can be an issue since everything is always v-synced, you can have issues. Uh, they also fixed latency on Wayland, especially for games. And they also improved the visual style. Uh, first, various pop-ups and windows that had a menu bar, a toolbar, and the title bar will now better follow the unified header style that Katie added. Uh, you know, where the the title bar and the toolbar and the menu bar have the same color theme or the same gradient applied across them. So they look like they're a unique part of the app instead of being three layers stacked on top of each other. So that's going to look better. And the developers also have created a new Kirigami component and ported a bunch of lists and grid views to it. Uh, it's part of their work to better unify the look and feel of Plasma. If you don't know what Kirigami is, it's basically KDE's efforts similar to GNOME's LibAdvita. It's something that was created to make apps that can work on Plasma Mobile and on the desktop. And it's slowly becoming like the way to develop a KDE app. Uh, it provides a bunch of components and widgets to create an app's UI way faster than if you had to re-implement everything using Qt components or KDE libs. Uh, it's just an easier way to do things. Now, the developers also fixed 119 bugs last week, which is huge. And also, we, all, we have some interesting news uh, from the Fedora front, the Fedora KDE spin. Uh, so they currently have a proposal to use Plasma 6 in Fedora 40. So we're going to have Fedora 39 uh, next month in October, which is still going to run Plasma 5.27. But Fedora 40 should release in April 2024. And this one now has a proposal to use Plasma 6. I think it's going to go through because Plasma 6 is supposed to release in February. So unless they move it back, that's a lot of time for Fedora to start testing and implementing this. But that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is that the KDE spin would entirely deprecate X11. They would move to Wayland entirely. And this would mean dropping support for X11 in all older versions of Plasma as well. So basically starting with Fedora 40, on the KDE spin, on the GNOME spin, maybe it's not going to do that. But on the KDE spin, it would entirely drop X11. And, and Plasma 6 would not be backported to any other version, uh, to any older Fedora version. So if you use Fedora KDE, if the proposal is accepted, it's not yet, but if it is accepted, 
you're not gonna run X11 on this. It's gonna be Wayland only. And I think that's exactly the right thing to do. Fedora is that distro. They include the very latest Linux stack when it's stable enough. And Plasma 6 should be the version where the KD Wayland session is stable enough. Currently on 5.27, there are still some issues. I'm encountering a bunch of problems. I'm daily driving KD for, for, I've been daily driving it for like a week and a half now on Wayland and with NVIDIA drivers. And yes, there are some issues that I never encountered in GNOME. It's way less stable, uh, way, way more problems in terms of multi-monitor and stuff like that. But Plasma 6 should do away with all of this because that's their main focus. And Fedora is the distro to do these kind of moves. Uh, they move to Pipewire first, they move to Wayland on GNOME first, they always adopt the latest stack once it's tested enough. And so I think it's really fitting for Fedora to move to Wayland only on Plasma 6. And honestly, I would not be surprised if they did the same thing for the main default GNOME spin as well. Now, of course, this proposal still needs to be accepted. It might not be, but I think at least the Plasma 6 part will be accepted because it would be weird to stick to 5.27 in, in Fedora 40 when Plasma 6 is out and you would have to wait for October 2024 to actually use the latest version of the DE. It would be weird, but the Wayland part might be rejected because, yeah, that might feel a bit extreme for some people. Honestly, I think it's a good thing, but some people might not agree. Now, just because Plasma 6 is a few months away doesn't mean that KDE, the current version, 5.27, isn't getting any updates. Uh, so the KDE team released 5.27.8, uh, this week, and it came with a bunch of nice improvements and fixes. Uh, first, they added support for the accent color standard, which I talked about, I think it was two weeks ago. Uh, there's now an XDG desktop portal standard for accent colors, which means that if you set your accent color in KDE, a GNOME app that you download that also supports this accent color portal will use your KDE accent color. So it's not going to look like a KDE app, but at least it's going to be colored in the same way, which is cool. Uh, there's also improvements to hybrid sleep. NVIDIA GPUs can once again be monitored in Plasma System Monitor. Nightcaller will now properly deactivate after resuming from sleep if, uh, if Nightcaller was turned off automatically. And LX11 users also get some love uh, with a better experience with the screenshot app of KDE. There's also a fix for multi-monitor setups where the desktop used to crash or to slow down uh, when you regularly connected or disconnected external monitors. And there are also improvements for Wayland. You don't have to wait for Plasma 6 to get a better Wayland experience. The window manager should be way more robust and crash less. There are some fixes for alt-tab window switching. And they also fixed a bunch of stuff for, fla for Flatpak apps and uh, specifically for SteamOS in Discover. They improved how title bars and toolbars are rendered on high DPI screens. And there are a lot of bug fixes and crash fixes. So of course, it's nothing groundbreaking. It's a point update to KD 5.27, which is a few months old uh, by now. But it's still very nice to see that they're still supporting and improving this version while they're working on Plasma 6, because you're not left with a non-functional or buggy desktop while you wait for the new version that should be better. You still get updates and support, and I think it's really cool. Now, if you're an XFCE user, you probably don't care all that much about Wayland, but you're probably going to have to use it at some point as well. And thankfully, the XFC devs have shared a roadmap just for that. So don't get too excited if you're a Wayland fan. Uh, there still isn't a firm date 
for them to complete the support. They still haven't decided on a specific version of XFC that should have complete Wayland support, but they have a goal to bring a complete native Wayland experience without needing X Wayland at all to run all the desktop and all its default applications. So first, XFC would use WL Roots as the base for their compositor, which is good because they won't have to re-implement everything themselves. And they also said that they don't really have the manpower to maintain their own complete Wayland compositor. What they know is that they don't want to use a Mutter, which is the GNOME compositor, because it would introduce dependency on GNOME. And since GNOME makes their components for themselves, like sure, it's open source, but they build it for GNOME. They don't build those components for everyone else to use. You can use them, but if you do, you use them with all their limitations and all their dependencies. So I can understand why they would not want to use that. So they're going to use WL Roots, which is a strong base. Now, in the short term, for XFC 4.18, they want to have all their apps working decently under Wayland, but not necessarily the whole desktop. Uh, in the long term, though, they want to completely drop X settings. They want to have no dependency on X11 or X Wayland. And they want to keep the modularity of XFC as well. They want to let users uh, retain the ability to run the XF desktop as a separate component or the XFC panels as a separate component. They're also discussing keeping backwards compatibility with X11 because there are a few issues still. Uh, NVIDIA still doesn't have open source drivers, which means that some use cases might not be well supported. And in the current state of things, the XFC panel and the XF desktop don't run under Wayland. But both components already have a completed port, which is just waiting to be merged once the various other issues are fixed. Because yes, the port works, but some dependencies and some stuff that depend on the panel and the desktop need to be modified to work under Wayland. So it's not like a drop-in replacement just yet. A lot of their default apps already work natively on Wayland, like the terminal or the task manager and a lot of others. Uh, the only really big one missing is the screenshot tool. Uh, and basically, if you want to know what's missing, what's ready, uh, the XFC devs have a complete list on their wiki for the status of all the apps, all the panel plugins, all the components. So if you want to check on that, uh, you can head over to the link that I left in the show notes. And if you want to give them a hand, well, you also can do just that. And I think it's really cool to see XFC moving forward with Wayland. Uh, now we're just missing Mate, Cinnamon, and Pantheon. If they are listening to this, guys, don't don't let XFC beat you to it. You can do it too. Like everyone needs to move to Wayland at some point. X11 is basically abandonware. No one's developing anything for it. No one's maintaining it you're gonna have to move to it. So the faster you start, the better it's gonna be for everyone. And speaking of better for everyone, uh, let's talk about our sponsor, which is Mozilla Thunderbird. Uh, you probably all know about it. It's your email, calendar, task manager. Basically, it's your client for your whole personal information management suite, for your contacts, your email, your calendar, everything. It's an app that I didn't really use before because the interface was sort of old, but they have that new supernova 115 release which changed everything visually you can still use the older interface if you prefer you have all the power to customize and change things but the new one 
is much, much, much better. You can customize it. You can have more padding, less padding. You can have a more legible folder list. You can hide the stuff you don't want. You can customize the header bar with all the buttons that you need or you want. It's really, really solid. It's, it should be available in most distributions and it's at least on Flathub uh, if you want to install it as a Flatpak. It's the app that I now use. I replaced uh, the Gnome Calendar and Geary Combo that I used by Thunderbird. And now that I'm on KDE, I also only use that because the other offerings on KDE for now for email are just super lackluster. And Thunderbird has become completely awesome. Uh, so yeah, if you want to check out the new version of Thunderbird, if you like had a negative opinion of it in the past, uh, really do give them a shot now. They changed a lot of stuff and they're really good. I left a link uh, in the show notes to the new version as well if you want to check them out. Now let's go back to our desktop environments. On the GNOME side of things, uh, there's a new release of LibidVita, which is version 1.4. And this one introduces breakpoints. It's basically like websites or web pages, like developers can set specific sizes at which the UI will change. So basically it can adapt to smaller window sizes or bigger screens or it's it's very useful for like mobile applications but it's also good on regular desktops. For example, if you have a small laptop screen, when you resize the app window, it's going to have a more usable layout instead of having like three panels that are squished together and once you move the app to an external display that has more room, then the app will have more room to breathe and so it will be able to display all the panels and all the UI. It's a good thing to have. There's also a new navigation view, which lets developers create stacks of pages in their application. And you can navigate these stacks using either touchpad or touchscreen gestures, or just a regular back button if you prefer. There's a new split view with a full height sidebar and a new content panel for app developers to make those kind of apps faster. There's a bunch of new widgets to make lists of either switches or spin buttons, which are these little buttons with plus and minus to adjust the value uh, for properties and they all have a nice unified style that should look coherent. And there are a bunch of components that also receive changes to make them look better or to handle more use cases for developers. Generally, if you're not an app developer, all you need to know is that LibAdvita is how GNOME developers make good-looking, coherent applications. And the more widgets are available in LibAdvita, the better they look, and the better the GNOME apps you're gonna get. Uh, they're, they're just simplifying the work for developers so they don't have to re-implement everything all the time. They have a solid set of widgets they can use in their user interface to make an app quickly and focus on the features instead of focusing on recoding the same button over and over again. Now, in terms of GNOME applications, there are new versions of a bunch of apps. The first one I didn't know about, it's called Photometric Viewer, and it's an app that lets you view light distribution curves and basically open photometric files. I personally don't have any use for that, but it's a very specialized application that I think some people might be very interested in. There's also a new release of Tagger, which is the audio metadata editor. So basically you open your audio files, MP3 or whatever, and you can change the metadata, the artists, the titles, the genres, whatever, uh, either one by one or in batches. There's also a new version of Parabolic, which is the YouTube downloader Thing. I think it was called YouTube Downloader previously or, or Tube Downloader. It's, it's a video downloader. You paste a URL and it downloads the video. Uh, you can download specific chapters, just the audio, choose the format. It's, it's a really good app that I use all the time. Uh, the GNOME Network Displays app also now lets you embed your mouse cursor in the video stream, which means that in some cases 
you didn't see the mouse cursor, but you could still move it, so you had to guess where you were clicking. Now that's not the case anymore, that's a solid improvement, I guess. There's a new update to Denaro, which is the personal finance manager. They have bug fixes galore to fix uh, currency conversions in the app. And Errands, which is a small task manager, has now been accepted into GNOME Circle, which, if you don't know, it's the apps that aren't part of the core GNOME desktop, but it's applications that have been vetted by the GNOME developers to ensure that they follow the GNOME uh, user interface guidelines and that they basically use the right GNOME components. And they're basically like stamp of approval from the GNOME team. Like, yes, these are good GNOME applications that anyone could get. So it's really cool to see more work on LibAdvita. I think this is the thing that helped GNOME really get the best app ecosystem on Linux. And I'm also really glad to see KD following in the same footsteps uh, by pushing Kirigami, which is their equivalent solution to LibAdvita, but to develop KD apps. And I really hope that the KD ecosystem can benefit from Kirigami to get as vibrant as the GNOME one. Maybe Plasma 6 will give KD the, the right push to actually move to that sort of level that GNOME has reached. But for now, I, I must say, using LibAdvita apps in KDE hasn't been a traumatizing experience. Like, yes, they don't look like the rest of my desktop. They don't use the Breeze theme or anything, but they look decent enough. They look good. And I mean, I don't really care. They're just good applications. I'm going to use them even if they're not coherent. It's not as good as using them on GNOME because then they were all completely coherent, but it's not shocking either. Now, in terms of Linux distro news, uh, first we have the release of OpenSUSE Slow Roll. That's a new variant based on Tumbleweed, which is like the rolling release of OpenSUSE. I made a dedicated video about OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. You can check it out uh, on my YouTube channel. So Slow Roll is basically the same thing, but with a slower release schedule than Tumbleweed. You're basically going to get big updates every one or two months instead of when they're ready. And of course, you're going to get security fixes and bug fixes more regularly as they come. But updates to, for example, your desktop, your Linux kernel will be more tested. And so will come in batches more slowly than in Tumbleweed. For now, it's still in experimental format. Uh, but you can either download an ISO or you can upgrade to it from Tumbleweed by replacing the repos. It's a nice option for people who don't want to have major upgrades to install every six months, but still want some stability and testing. I think it's the best of both worlds uh, if you don't mind waiting a little bit more than Tumbleweed users. We also got the Linux Mint Debian Edition 6 as a beta a few months after the release of the Ubuntu-based version of Mint. Uh, so it uses Debian 12 as its base, which means it's really recent and nice. It packs uh, the latest Cinnamon desktop that you would find in the latest release of Mint. I think it's 21.2. Uh, and you can already download that beta from the Mint website right now. If you like the Mint experience, but you don't really like the Ubuntu base, then you can probably be very satisfied with Linux Mint Debian Edition, especially since Debian 12 is a very solid base. It might even be more up to date than the Ubuntu 22.04 base that Mint 21.2 uses. So at the moment, Maybe Mint Debian Edition is going to be more modern and with newer packages than regular Mint, which I think is pretty cool. 
And for Ubuntu, it looks like 23.10, that will be released next month in October, will have a full disk encryption option in its installer. And you might be saying, but Nick, they already had that. And yes, they did. But the new one, instead of using LUX, L-U-K-S, will use the TPM chip that you might have in your devices. So if you don't know that TPM chip thing is a trusted platform module, it's something that, for example, Windows added as a requirement to install Windows 11, although you can bypass that using the registry. And it's basically just another chip on your motherboard that is used specifically for various security-related features, especially encryption. So they're going to offer that as experimental support in the new installer that would be added on top of the Lux setup that most distributions have used for a long while now. Uh, the advantage compared to the traditional Lux setup is that you won't need to type a passphrase at boot, but it also means that they're going to ship the kernel and bootloader assets using snaps instead of deb packages because that basically gives them more control over where they're contained and it's also probably a good excuse for them to try that out. Uh, it's an interesting approach. I don't think that tying that to snaps will be well received by a lot of people uh, but you will still have the option to use locks to encrypt your disk if you prefer so you won't be forced to use it although I'm pretty sure that in the future the locks option will be removed and you're only going to have to use the TPM enabled snap enabled kind of feature instead. Now this week we also got the GNOME 45 release candidate and I'm putting this pretty much at the end of the podcast because well GNOME 45 releases next week you've probably already seen a bunch of videos or articles about what's new uh, you're gonna get a video from me next week as well explaining all the changes but still there's the release candidate and it's got a few last minute changes in there. Uh, first you can now press backspace to dismiss notifications when they pop up which is pretty cool. Uh, the new activities button has been added as well, which if you don't know is that new pill-shaped thing instead of the activities text in the top panel. Uh, you can click it to display the activities and it reflects the workspace that you're currently on and the number of workspaces you have to the right and to the left of the one you're currently on. But also apparently you're going to be able to just scroll over that button to switch workspaces, which I think is pretty cool as well. Uh, the quick settings menu got a new feature, a sort of API that lets extensions place buttons in that menu. So it's going to be easier to put buttons in those quick settings uh, for extension developers. They also improved X Wayland support since the beta. Uh, three finger swipes on touchscreens should now work more reliably. And they improved the search in GNOME software. They completely redesigned the uh, month view in GNOME calendar. So now you have infinite scroll to get to past or future month. There's a new event dialogue in that app and a lot more. Uh, Nautilus finally gained its full height sidebar, which judging from the screenshots doesn't look like an improvement in terms of usability. The settings were mostly all ported to newer LibAdvita components uh, for people who need a screen reader. Orca should perform better and should let you filter out some redundant descriptions of items on screen. So there will be less audio clutter when, when you're actually reading what's on screen. And GNOME Maps gained an experimental vector-based tile set. So a lot more has changed in this release candidate than I was expecting. Uh, I really thought that GNOME 45 would be a very small update because it didn't look like it had a lot of features. But honestly, it looks like it's changing quite a few things. So of course, as I said, you can expect a dedicated video about this next week on my YouTube channel. 
Uh, and you'll also get a recap in the next episode of the podcast once it's out. Uh, a recap of all the new stuff that they actually added. And maybe a few impressions uh, since I will have had time to play around with it. And of course this week we also have the usual slew of drivers and performance updates to the Linux kernel. Uh, first, unfortunate news, the work needed to move to the new Intel XC driver has not landed in time for the Linux kernel 6.6. So the next version of the kernel will not in fact replace the old i915 driver for Intel integrated GPUs with the new Intel XE driver. It's a bummer because this new driver is much much better on paper at least and judging from early benchmarks and it also will add support for non-x86 architectures. I don't quite understand why because those XE graphics are tied to Intel CPUs which are all x86 as far as I know but apparently that's a thing. But yeah the old Intel i915 driver does handle XE graphics pretty well, but the new driver apparently has a lot better performance. Uh, but it does require a bunch of patches for the direct rendering manager and for the scheduler in the kernel, and these patches are still under review, so it didn't make it into 6.6 and we'll probably have to wait for 6.7 in a few more months. It's a small setback, but it's annoying because it means that if you use a laptop with an Intel CPU, you're not getting the best performance or the best battery life out of your device. Now what we will get in the Linux kernel 6.6 is support for per policy performance boosting in the CPU, which means that the system can decide to boost some cores, but not all of them for longer battery life while improving performance. Uh, so basically if you're only using two of your eight or 10 CPU cores for an intensive workload, you won't have to boost the 10 cores. You can just boost the two cores that are needed, but the other ones can still run at their relatively lower speeds to do everything that's needed in the background, which means that you're not gonna suck as much power out of your battery, which means that your battery life will be better. It's just more efficient. We will also see some improvements to CPUs that use multiple L3 caches. Uh, from what I understand, but I am not a CPU specialist, uh, those caches are basically used to store the queue of instructions that the CPU needs to handle. And if you only have one cache, then you store all these instructions in that one cache and all your cores read from it. If you have multiple caches, then for now the Linux kernel sends instructions to specific caches where they state. So if you had three caches and you had three instructions, you dispatch one instruction per cache. But if one of those caches was empty because the instruction was executed, you never moved the other instructions to the cache that is free. So you still had to wait until this instruction had its turn on its own cache, which meant that some stuff could be slower. The kernel in, well, in version 6.6 will now be able to dynamically move these elements between caches instead of just leaving them on their assigned one. That, that's how I understand it. I might have gotten that wrong because as I'm not a specialist in, in Linux drivers and CPU drivers, but I think that's how it's gonna work. And so it's gonna be more performance as well. Now we also have some Mesa updates for the free and open source graphics drivers for Linux, uh, Mesa 23.3 specifically. Uh, and so these open source drivers gained the ability to allow for screen tearing in games under Wayland and X Wayland. And if you don't know why that matters, because you would not want screen tearing in your games, usually that's bad, it looks horrible. 
Uh, but Wayland tends to enforce VSync. Well, Wayland compositors tend to enforce VSync to avoid having screen tearing. But for some games, enforced VSync adds latency because you have to wait for the top part and the bottom part of the image to be rendered before it's actually displayed, which means you might lose a few microseconds or milliseconds. Uh, and for some competitive games, it can be a bummer. So now you will be able to enable screen tearing in games to have the most reactive gameplay experience, which is pretty cool. Now, it's a shame about that Intel XC driver, especially since my laptop has now a, uh, I think it's a 13th gen Intel CPU with XC graphics, although I also have an NVIDIA GPU in there. Uh, but I would like to have the new driver to get better battery life when in hybrid mode. But yeah, it's better to push it back instead of shipping it right now if stuff is broken or not currently supported. Uh, but yeah, always nice to see that the Linux kernel gets better performance all the time. Really cool stuff going on these days. And uh, yeah, very excited to get those updates. Okay, and now we're gonna finish this episode with the gaming news. Uh, so first we have an update to the Proton implementation of VKD3D, which is the DirectX 12 to Vulkan translation layer. This new version brings support for direct storage commands, and it also fixes some performance issues in Starfield specifically. And it also adds support for something called Enhanced Barriers, which I have no idea what it does, and apparently no games use that just yet, but at least the support is there for when games start using it, which means we'll have less compatibility problems in the future. Uh, VKD3D Proton also brought some fixes for shaders in Unreal Engine 5 games, uh, fixes for the Xbox 360 emulator, and for specific games like Monster Hunter Rise, Age of Wonder 4, Halo Infinite, Street Fighter 6, Resident Evil 4, Star Wars Battlefront 2, and a lot more. Now in terms of updates, we also have an update to DXVK NVAPI, which is basically the implementation of the NVIDIA API for DXVK specifically, so for Linux gaming. Uh, and it comes with support for HDR. And what's interesting is that this support only works for AMD GPUs for now, if you have the relevant kernel patches, if you use SteamOS and Gamescope, and if you use the latest version of DXVK NV API. So most people will not be able to use it just yet. Now it's pretty fun because that's a new update for an NVIDIA API that is getting used faster through the AMD open source drivers than through the NVIDIA proprietary drivers, which I think is pretty fun. And obviously that's something that Valvemus has developed because for now it requires Gamescope, but it is a good step to enable HDR support for more people, which we will see in a minute, uh, is actually a new feature of SteamOS 3.5. Uh, personally, I do have an HDR TV and I would love to game using my SteamOS console using HDR because I do have Gamescope and I will have the update, so maybe I'll be able to game on HDR. Now we also got an update to Wine, Wine 8.16. Uh, it gets the beginnings of the implementation for the Direct Music API, which is something that has been deprecated since the Windows Vista days. It's part of a DirectX, an older version of DirectX, probably DirectX 8 or 9. Uh, and it, well, it was there to handle music in games. Uh, but now they're re-implementing it in Wine just in case it might help with supporting older games, probably. Uh, and also this new version of Wine brings 33 bug fixes for no specific games this time. There's a bug fix for Roblox in Wine because it had terrible performance for some people apparently. But most of the bug fixes are for various DLLs which might or might not impact various games. 
And finally we have some Steam Deck related news. First, the Steam Deck and its dock are going back on sale. It's the 20 years uh, anniversary of Steam, apparently, or, or Valve, not quite sure. Uh, and they're bringing in discounts uh, for the Steam Deck and the dock. The dock goes for 20% less, and the Steam Deck has uh, discounts from 10% for the base model, up to 20% for the most expensive one. But what's more interesting to me, because I already have a Steam Deck, so I don't care about the price reduction, is the preview build of SteamOS 3.5, which not only brings uh, those sliders to change the color vibrancy, the color temperature, but it also comes with the ability to undervolt the Steam Deck's APU to save some battery life, and it now supports HDR for external displays, obviously because the internal display of the Steam Deck does not have HDR support. And it also adds variable refresh rate uh, as a thing that you can do now for external displays that support it. They also updated the whole Arch Linux base of SteamOS, including the KD Plasma desktop that you get out of the desktop mode. So now you should get the latest 5.27 something version. They also updated the graphics driver in there. Uh, it has fixes for Starfield specifically, and there are a bunch of other smaller improvements as well. So it's still in preview, it's not officially out in stable, but if you use a Steam Deck, you can move to the preview channel in the general settings, not the beta, the preview. Uh, it's more stable than the beta, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and you can download it, install it, reboot the deck, and give it a shot. I will personally use it on my SteamOS console, which means that not only I will get better performance on Starfield, because yes, I bought it, and wow, is it badly optimized, and wow, does it look like Fallout 4 in space, and it's not a compliment. But also maybe I will be able to play in HDR on my 4K TV, which is really cool because like on my PS5 I can do it, but on my SteamOS console that is much more expensive, I couldn't. And now maybe I will be able to, which is nice. So this will conclude this episode of the podcast. As always, if you want to learn more about one of these items or more of than one of these items, all the links are in the show notes. If you want to try out Thunderbird, our video sponsor, I also left a link in the show note. And if you want to support the show because you like listening to it, it's a nice break and it gives you some nice information about Linux that you don't want to go hunt for yourself, then you can also support the show with a bunch of links in the show notes just as well. So thank you all for listening and I guess you will hear me next week. Bye! <laughs>